welcome to the Litigation Psychology Podcast brought to you by Courtroom Sciences. Dr. Steve Wood, solo podcast today, kind of an impromptu podcast of sorts. Just thought I'd jump on it and share some thoughts that have come up recently in my mind, you know, and, and talking about jury selection, right? More, more cases, the courts are starting to open back up, cases are starting to go to trial, a lot more jury selection is happening. And, you know, some attorneys talk about how cases are won and lost injury selection. And yet what I've been seeing is some attorneys are really, really good at doing voir dire and getting jurors to talk. And some of them are, are not so good. So I wanted to get on here, talk a little bit about what I've seen in my experience and kind of what my thoughts are as far as some successful ways to pick a jury and, and kind of the tips and tricks to use as far as the voir dire process. You know, First thing I key, always get asked about is, you know, Steve, this case, what, what's my key demographic? Who are my jurors? Are they 25 to 35 year old females with college education? You know, what is, what is the key demographic? And my response to that always is demographics really are just kind of the tip of the iceberg. I mean, it's just the first thing that you kind of look at. It's the easiest thing to kind of see from people, but it's not something that you should be making your decisions on just based upon that. You know, we always talk about it's more of the attitudes, experiences, kind of the path that other the jurors have walked in their life is really going to be what drives it. Now, do the demographics and all these other factors play into the potential path these people have walked? Yes. But do I sit blindly and say, okay, this is an African-American person, therefore they tend to skew plaintiff, therefore they're going to be plaintiff in this case, or this person's an engineer, engineers tend to go towards the defense, therefore I want engineers all the time. Because much like everything in life, there's always an exception to the rule. And what we end up finding out is those people who we always believe are going to side one way or the other based upon their demographics don't. So demographics, if you're focusing on those, very, very poor predictor of actual verdict. So it's a starting point, but definitely need to dig deeper attitudes and experiences are going to be the things that are much more predictive to which way they're going to side. You know, then the other thing too, is a lot of times when we get up there, when, when I see attorneys get up there and, and they're doing their voir dire, it's more or less just kind of asking people questions of, you know, can you be fair and impartial? Did anybody here, who here is the sympathetic person? Who here thinks that big corporations are bad? And you might get a couple hands raised and then rather than pushing any further or, or doing anything further, the attorney makes note, okay, juror 11 and 13 said they're the sympathetic personality. Okay, moving on. But really what it should be doing is an attorney should be looking at voir dire as really something that's being run like a focus group. Okay. You get a juror, juror 11, raise their hand, say they're sy sympathetic personality. Talk to them. Okay. Juror number 11, you know, Tell me about that. You, you know, why do you believe you're the sympathetic person or, or what is the experiences? What is that? Tell me more about the sympathy and have them talk and really get out there and they start explaining what their thoughts and the beliefs are. And then say, thanks for that, 11. How many other people, anybody else kind of feel the way number 11 does? Anybody not feel the way number 11 does? Anybody else who says, you know what? I'm not the sympathetic type. I'm the one who is more or less able to put my emotions aside and look at things from a factual standpoint, who'd say they're more like that? Get those people to raise their hands. Okay, thank you, and then and dig more. But too often, 
I see where it gets more or less just short answers. Okay, we get the we get the response that we want, but then there's no further probing. You know, and the and the reason why it becomes important to run it like a focus group is because, you know, there's people there who are going to talk. There's people there who are going to always have an opinion, that feel comfortable talking, in public spaces. And then there's going to be other people who are scared to death of public speaking. I mean, there's been countless times where you talk about research that shows that, you know. People are more terrified of death than, or more terrified of public speaking, excuse me, than they are of death. So public speaking is a very big fear of some people. So those are going to be the people that are going to be quiet. Those are going to be the people who sit in the back and, and don't say anything and hope to hide. And it's not because they don't have anything to say. It's because they're just afraid to talk. So it's on the attorney to then focus on, okay, who are the quiet people let me draw out the quiet people and say, you know, juror number 14, I haven't heard much from you. You know, talk to me about this response, you know, and, and force that person to actually have to, to, to talk because it might not be that they don't have anything to say. It's just they're uncomfortable doing it. And when you're running voir dire, like a focus group, then more people are starting to feel comfortable. And we see it all the time is once you kind of warm up the room of sorts, those people start to get more vocal and then you start listening more information. But if it's really cold and calculated and in just really short questions, it's, it's not going to make jurors feel very comfortable to be able to voice their opinions. You know, and that's when I also talk about too, is probing people talking about a more is if, if you're the attorney and, and you're looking for someone to strike and, and someone says something that could raise it up for a challenge or could be problematic, what ends up happening too often is I see the attorney kind of leaves it alone. They say something that could be harmful. They say something that could get them brought up on a cause strike. And then they say, okay, thank you. Leave it alone rather than continue to probe more to get more information to either elicit more to find out whether or not they are a favorable juror for us, or they're not a favorable juror for us, or if there's some type of thing that we can use in order to get them off for cause. It's just left alone. So once again, when you're questioning jurors, when you're running it like a focus group, probe more. Don't be afraid to ask additional questions. Don't be afraid to ask follow-up questions. And once again, think of yourself as a facilitator of, of a focus group, not just someone who's gonna come up there and ask these really short close-ended questions. Same thing, sympathy. As I said before, you know, when, when, when someone says something about they're gonna be sympathetic, you know, challenge them, ask them and say, okay, you realize that this case can't be judged on sympathy and the judge is going to give you judicial instructions that you can't use sympathy in your decision-making. Juror number 11, how are you going to set aside sympathy? How are you going to tell yourself, okay, I know I'm a sympathetic person, but I can't let that make my decision. Like, how, how are you going to set that aside? Tell me how you're going to do that. And once again, force that person to have to think about it, force that person to have to explain their ability to set aside sympathy. Because once again, if you get them and hear them say some things that give you a sense or a pause that they're not going to be able to set aside sympathy. Now you've created a sense or an ability to strike them for cause because now you have them saying things that shows, you know what, see, this person said they could set it aside. But when I asked them how they were going to do it, they couldn't really give me a good answer. Or they couldn't really explain very well how they were going to be able to do it. So from my perspective, judge, I'm not sure they're going to be able to actually set it aside the best that they can. They're not going to be able to do it. So maybe they're not the best juror for this case. Another topic, social desirability bias. You know, if you think about 
you know, as we've talked before, as, as, as a social psychologist, one of my areas of focus is looking at how people's interactions with one another help to shape their psychology. And from a social desirability factor, you know, there's a lot of influences, outside influences in the courtroom. And when you're asking jurors difficult questions, when you're asking jurors sensitive questions, they're going to give you the more socially desirable answer, right? They're going to give you the answer that makes them sound better. They're going to give you the half truth of sorts on certain things because they know if they were to tell you their full opinion, it may or may not look good for them. So what you end up seeing is a lot of jurors holding back from their thoughts, a lot of jurors holding back any sort of biases they may have. And if you think about it, they get, might ask a question and, you know, can you be fair and impartial? And the judge is sitting up there looking at them, say, juror number 11, can you be fair and impartial? What do you think they're going to say? You think they're going to say, I'm, no, judge, I'm, I'm not going to be fair and impartial. I, I'm going to be a completely biased juror. Now, sometimes they might say it to the attorney. They might say, I can't be fair and impartial to the attorney. But when the judge actually gets them there and asks them, a lot of times they're going to say, no, you're right, judge. I, I can set it aside and I can be fair and impartial. And, and sometimes it's not even just, sometimes it's not even the judge. Sometimes the attorney is able to do it. Sometimes, you know, they'll be intimidated by the attorney and, and they'll capitulate to them as well and, and just say, yeah, I can be fair and impartial. When you know darn well, they're not going to be. It's just because they want to make themselves seem more credible. They don't want to make themselves seem biased. So that's why it goes back to when I said before, running it like a focus group, probing more is don't just take that person who has said something that's caused a red flag to think, hmm, this juror might be problematic and let it slide, you know? And oh, because they said yes, and on, on rehabilitation, they said, you know, yes, uh, but I can follow the evidence. Although they just said four or five other comments on the front side to make you think they wouldn't be able to. Don't believe the fact that just because they said, but I, I can set all that aside and be fair and impartial. Ask them, how are you gonna do that? How are you going to take all of this that you have here, all of this kind of additional biases that you have and set it aside? Tell me how you're going to be able to do that. And once again, when they're doing that, listen, are they hemming and hawing? Do they have a really good explanation or, or are they clunky in, in how they're trying to explain it? That once again is going to give you more insight into whether they're a bad juror that you can get out for, for cause or are they someone that you're going to want to use your peremptory strike on because even though they said they could be fair and impartial, you're not buying it. Okay, but can't do it if you're not listening and if you're not probing more. You know, another thing when I talk about jury selection from a de defense perspective, you know, when we talk about demographics and we talk about what are kind of the, the things that we want to look for in, in quote unquote favorable jurors for our side, you know, what we found kind of over the years of research is that one of the key markers of a more pro plaintiff juror is cynicism. All right. The whole idea that they've been on the outside looking in and that they've been passed over for promotions and that kind of the, the world is inherently evil and inherently dangerous and that they haven't gotten all the breaks in their life that other people have gotten. Contrast that against kind of skepticism of the idea of, you know, I'm not completely convinced of this. I need more information before I can make a decision. Those are going to be those type of jurors who say, you know, it depends I need to have more. I need to have more. The cynical jurors are going to be more of the ones who kind of have it all figured out. They're going to be highly emotional. They're going to be, like you said, you're going to be able to hear it 
uh, in, in their voice as far as that kind of level of emotionality or negativity or jadedness. And, you know, I get asked all the time by attorneys, okay, well, if cynicism is one of the top predictors of pro plaintiff verdicts, what are the questions that I need to ask? Now, obviously, I'm not going to go in on the podcast and, and give up all the questions. Um, I'm happy to talk to talk to clients, you know, during a jury selection process about this. But I guess one of the things I can say is, you know, there's several questions you can ask, but it's not necessarily the question per se. It's it's how that person responds. So just to give you one example, let's say a, a, a juror, you ask a juror who here has ever wanted to sue, but didn't for some reason. And then you ask, okay, why, why didn't you? Why didn't you end up suing? The cynical juror is probably going to say something more along the lines of, well, I didn't figure anybody believed me. Uh, I didn't have I didn't have money. No one was going to no one was listening to me. I just assumed it was going to get thrown out. I just assumed, you know, if I was going up against a big corporation, I would never win. So I just let it go versus the, the juror who says, you know, I thought about it more and I and I thought, you know, maybe I had some responsibility in it and and it just wasn't worth it for me to push through and, and pursue it because, you know, I could see where, you know, I, I kind of had some fault more as I was looking back on it. So those are two different responses to the exact same question, but that goes again, as I'm gonna harp on again, is you have to get jurors talking. You have to get jurors to start explaining things and giving their life experiences so that it, it highlights their attitudes, it highlights kind of their thoughts and their beliefs. So it's not necessarily questions per se, it's more or less how they respond is gonna give you more information into it. You know, and that really goes back to, you know, when I talk about getting people to talk is you got to take a lot of notes and you got to be able to quote verbatim what a juror says. So it's not enough to just say, judge, she said X, Y, and Z just generally, because, you know, opposing counsel might say, well, yeah, you know, judge, she did say that, but remember when she said, but she'd be, she could still be fair and impartial. You know, the better off is to say, judge, she said this exact thing, and then you can quote her. You know, and then she can even say, and you can even go back and say, judge, after I heard her say yes, but I can follow the evidence, I then heard her say again, and then you can quote it verbatim. So it just makes it that much more detailed so that you can pull it out and make a better argument to the judge for a cause challenge versus just kind of a half, uh, half-assed of sorts <laughs> argument for cause, because you can't really back up why it is that you're, you know, challenging them for cause, or you can't really explain it thoroughly. You know, and then other thing is you got to get jurors to hold each other accountable, you know, use that voir dire process as an opportunity, you know, to kind of put in themes, push forward a narrative just a little bit, you know, within the reasons of, you know, not getting a, a, a drawing an objection or having the judge admonish you for trying to, you know, put your case in chief on during voir dire. Um, but, you know, you do want to sort of get jurors thinking and get jurors thinking about, you know, the case facts and get, getting jurors thinking about, you know, what they're going to see. But the other thing you want to get them to do is, is get into a sense where they're holding each other accountable, meaning, you know, going back once again to this idea of sympathy or following the judicial ruling or the judicial laws is get jurors to say, okay, you know, you, you, you hear that you're going to have to put sympathy and bias and prejudice aside when you're deciding this case. Can everybody agree to do that? Juror number one, can you agree that you're going to, you know, put sympathy aside when you're making this decision? 
and get them to actually agree to it. But then also say, all right, if you're picked for this jury, you know, if, if one of your fellow jurors is in there and they're talking about how they're sympathetic and they feel bad for this plaintiff, you know, can you be the one to say, hey, remember, you had, we had instructions here. We can't let sympathy play into that. We got to look at the case facts. Is this a sad case? Yes. But can we let our sympathy take hold? No. So make them kind of agree to the fact that they'll hold each other accountable. So when they do get back into the deliberation room and someone does do that, you've kind of given them the okay to kind of hold each other accountable. You've given them to say the right to say, okay, remember, we're not supposed to be able to do this so that if not, you're going to get people back there and they're going to know that they're not supposed to use sympathy, but they're going to start talking about it, start saying, oh, how sad it is. But no one has really given them the okay to stand up and say, hey, remember when that guy told us and we all agreed to the fact that we wouldn't let sympathy do it? You know, let's, let's, not, let's not fall into that trap. And then last, background research. Now you got to do some background research on these jurors prior to voir dire. You know, I mean, there's, there's, there's plenty of services out there that can look at, you know, Facebook posting, LinkedIn, a lot of these other financial records, criminal history. There's a lot of information out there that can be found about jurors leading into voir dire so that it helps to inform your decision-making because maybe your, your voir dire is limited. Maybe you're not going to have a, you know, maybe it's going to be judge um, led voir dire. So you're not going to have a lot of opportunity to really question and do the things that I've been mentioning in this podcast in order to elicit more information from jurors. So your background research is going to be the thing that helps to inform some of those decisions as well. And a lot of times I see whereas clients either don't want to pay for it, don't think about it, um, you know, and, and they're just not conducting this research to make sure that they're fully informed on the actual jurors that are being selected. So once again, you, you know, knowledge is power and you want to get as much knowledge as you can, because going back to all the other things I've said is what the jurors are necessarily saying is not always going to be 100% truth. And they're going to probably, you know, put some stuff through rose colored glasses to make themselves look a little bit better. So you need to do your due diligence to get a better sense for who those people are in the jury box so that you can help to make more informed decisions. So hopefully it's been helpful. It's kind of my two cents as far as what I've seen and, you know, in my experience, as far as jury selection goes, this has been another edition of Litigation Psychology Podcast brought to you by Courtroom Sciences.